0: that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Thank you, Jeff, for reading that. Um, That's going to be our passage that we will study here in just a few minutes, but let's turn to the Lord one more time and ask him to lead us through his word. God, we come back together again as a family and we get to gather with one another and we lift our voices as one unto you this morning, singing the truths about who you are and what you've come to do. We thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for sending Jesus into the world to save us, us the sinners that needed salvation. And so this morning we ask that you would use this passage from 1 Timothy to encourage us about your plan of salvation, about sending Jesus into the world for us. We again pray that you would use your spirit to apply these truths to our hearts. I pray that our reverence and our thankfulness to you would increase. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we began an Advent series, and Advent simply means coming or arrival. And at this time of year, we are focusing on the first coming or the first arrival of Jesus. A second arrival or a second coming of Jesus will take place in the future. To help us laser our attention in, we went to Genesis chapter three last week. And in that story, we see a perfect creation that God has made, humanity is without sin, But into this perfection and goodness comes a slithering serpent named Satan, and he meets Eve, and he plants thoughts in her mind and in her heart, thoughts that are filled with lies and pride. You see, God had told Adam and Eve, he said, don't eat of the fruit of that tree, because when you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. Surely you will die. And then Satan comes in and he aims to counter God's authority and actually displace God's authority in the lives of God's people. And so Satan came in as a deceiver and as a tempter saying, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. You need this in your life. So Eve gave ear to the serpent. She saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was a desire to make one wise. And she made a decision. God's word and authority that is standing here. And she says, no, I don't want that. And so both Adam and Eve rejected God as their ultimate authority in life. And committed sin and disobedience against him. And when Adam and Eve sinned, everything changed. We saw this from Romans 5 last week, how Adam is our representative. And when the representative sins, we all follow in his path. Now think about this from God's perspective for just a moment. God could have stopped the whole show right there in Genesis chapter 3 as though humanity were an experiment that had gone wrong. I mean, if you were the maker and creator, and it was your job to, if you will, make the human race, and your first two creations now have error in them, sin in them, defects in them, you would probably wipe the slate clean and say, no, that's not how I want to start, I'll start over with two new ones. But God didn't do that. Instead of wiping out Adam and Eve right there, he instead pursued them. He was the one who went into the garden and approached them in their hiding and in their shame. He moved toward them in their state of sin. He provided covering and protection for them with the animal skins which is a foreshadow or picture of what it takes to cover our sin in the person of Christ. He also provided a promise that that serpent who had slithered into their lives would someday be crushed. And so we saw that fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus. But here is God. He's pursuing them in Genesis 3. And from then on, the story of the Bible is God being portrayed as the one who pursues his people. He's the one who comes to his people. People don't come to him. He comes to Noah. He's the one who comes to Abraham. He comes to Isaac and Jacob He's the one who comes to Israel, he comes to the judges, he comes to the kings and the prophets, and eventually he comes to us in the person of Jesus. John 1 says that Jesus came into the world. So for our second sermon in this Advent series, we are continuing the theme of God pursues. And we're going to add a little bit more meat to the bones by answering the following question. Why does God choose to pursue us with salvation? Why? It's true that he pursues, but why is it that God chooses to pursue us with salvation? Especially with the thought that if the first two were sinners and he could have started over with a whole new race, why didn't he? I mean, I I think about it again from maybe a more simplistic perspective perspective. If your role was to raise a herd of cows, perfect cows, and you were given two cows to start with, and all of a sudden something goes wrong in those two cows, are you sticking with those two cows to make a huge herd? You're going to say, hey, give me my money back. I want two new ones. We're going to start this whole thing over again. But that's not what God did. Why did God choose to stick with the human race from Adam and Eve who were representatives of all of us and from them here come 8 billion people on the world today who are sinners? Why did God do that? So three questions that will function as your three points for an outline this morning. And these three questions are simply this. Whom does God save how does God save and why does God save? So whom does God save? This is real easy. You can make ditto marks. How does God save and why does God save? All right, so verses 12 through 15, just simply, whom does God save? Well, verse 12 starts out with a positive note. It's a verse of thanks. Thanks. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Who's the him? It's Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, what has Christ Jesus done in verse 12? It says, he has judged me faithful, and he has appointed me to his service. So here Paul is just launching out with his testimony to Timothy, and he's saying, here's what's happened in my life, and his focus is on the person of Jesus here. Not only is this focus on the person of Jesus here in verse 12, but we also see what Jesus has done. It says that the Lord has given him strength, strength to carry out this ministry. And out of that strength, Paul was faithful, and God judged him as being faithful, and the Lord appointed him to this service. So Paul's thankful here. This is the work that God has done in Paul's life. He's the one who set him aside, and used him for service. But to appreciate where Paul is right now, he tells Timothy, let me tell you where I've been. Uh, let's talk about whom I was formerly. So in verse 13, he says this. Here's where I am, verse 12, though, in contrast, formally, here's who I was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, and I was an insolent opponent. Now, you might be newer to the Bible. Who is this guy named Paul, and what's his backstory here? Paul, before he became a Christian, was otherwise named Saul, and he was a very devoted, very zealous, very strong individual who took his Jewish faith seriously. So this Saul, later named Paul, whom we're studying here, he shows up in the Bible as an accomplice at a murder scene. A man named Stephen had become a Christian, and Stephen's teaching ministry was causing waves in the Jewish establishment. So what do religious political rulers do when their establishment is threatened? Well, they bring on persecution and even execution. And that's what happened to Stephen. Stephen was murdered, and Saul is there holding the coats of those who are carrying out this stoning against Stephen. There's where we first get introduced to this guy whom we're reading about. Then in Acts chapter 8, we see this. It says that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And who was part of it? But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then again in chapter 9, just so we see a little bit more of his backstory. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's this guy. I mean, he is what he calls himself. He's a blasphemer. He's a persecutor of the Christians. He's an opponent to them. And so Paul now, after his conversion, he's named Paul. Sorry about the popping on it. I can hear it up here, but nothing I can do to fix it now. After his conversion, Paul is looking at Timothy and writing Timothy and saying, hey, this is whom I was, but God. God did a work in my life. And he says, as we continue throughout the text here in verse 13, he says, but in contrast to who I was, I received mercy. Mercy is simply God withholding the judgment that I deserve. And he says that I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's all of us. Before we're a Christian, before we believe in Jesus, we are acting ignorantly. We're not seeing the value of who Jesus is. So we're ignorant and unbelieving. We might know who he is by name. Paul would have known who Jesus was by name. But he didn't see the worth of him. And so he says, God came to me with mercy because of the sins that I had committed as a blasphemer, persecuted, and insolent opponent. I deserve judgment, but here was God pouring out mercy on me. And not only did he receive mercy, but in verse 14, it says that he received grace. He says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I was reading John Stott this last week on this particular verse and he has this illustration about the Nile River. Every year during the rainy season, the Nile River swells and overflows its banks. And if you're a farmer along the Nile River, you want that to happen because that overflowing river carries not only water but rich minerals for the soil. And then when it hits your land, it makes it very fertile. So God here is like a river that is flowing through life. And Paul says that God's grace overflowed its banks and came into his life. It's a wonderful picture if we think about it just for a moment that this is who we are. Wherever we were, acting in ignorance and unbelief to the value of who Jesus is, we're receiving mercy, and God, like a river of grace, comes into our lives, and he chooses to push that river of grace outside of its banks and into our lives. And what is the outcome? He says that there is love and faith. Love for Christ, faith in Christ, And so here's the conversion for Paul. He went from being an ignorant sinner acting in unbelief to a person who received mercy and was washed over with God's grace. And it started a new season for him. So, what are we being taught here? Well, very simply, in point number one, whom can God save? Paul looks at himself and he says, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, and I was saved. Here's the truth. God can save any sinner. God can save any sinner. And as you go into this Advent season, I think we are anticipating being with family members, and there's a good chance that in your extended family, there are the uncles who have this notorious reputation, and instead of looking at them as an outcast or an unsalvageable person, we need to start thinking, oh, this is just a field along God's river of grace, and his grace can easily swell up over the banks and make this a fertile field, a saved soul. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He said, do not be deceived now. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is that people who walk and live in this direction and choose this as a pattern of life are people who are not choosing to follow God. But then notice the next point that he makes. And such were some of you. Those were the sins that you were involved in. But notice his language. You were washed. Here's God's grace. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So all of us, as we think about this, We're at one point outside of God's grace. We hadn't been splattered with God's grace. We hadn't received his mercy. But God in his kindness came to us. Ephesians chapter 2. And you, all of us, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So at one level, Christian, we were all like Saul turned Paul. We have our former way of life. We were the ones who may not have been outright blasphemers. We may not have been going around persecuting the churches. We may not have been these arrogant opponents to the church or to Christianity, but we had our sin. We were sinful before God. We were disobedient to parents. We were liars. We were giving ourselves over to disobedience. We were acting on our own selfishness. And yet, here comes God. He brought his mercy and his grace. And if you're a Christian today with faith in Jesus, it's only because God chose to overflow into your life with his grace and mercy. So verse 15 he says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So whom does God save? It's very simple here. Paul looks at himself and then he makes the statement. He sees himself as a sinner and then he says, Christ Jesus came to save sinners He came to save all kinds of sinners, all types of sinners, great and small. That's what God does. God saves. If you're here as a non-Christian, you may have a background where you just kind of wonder, is there any hope? And there is, you are the kind of person whom God saves. And he does it by simply extending mercy and grace to you. You might be thinking, I'm too bad to be accepted by God. Oh no, God delights in taking those stony, rocky, dirty fields and turning them into something wonderful. Whom does God save? He saves sinners. Now, how did all this happen? That's point number two, how does God save? Well, verse 15, very simple, Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. When Paul says that, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, he's just simply simply saying, this is very important. It's like Jesus in his words in the gospels using the terms verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, I want you to understand this. Well, what is it that Paul wants us to understand? He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's the statement. It's of crucial importance for us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So how does God save? God saves by sending Christ Jesus into the world to save us. Now, just several observations here. Notice who Christ Jesus is. He's going to be the one who saves. We've been studying Christ through the Gospel of Mark. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the designated one. We saw him last week as the serpent crusher. In Genesis, he is the seed of Abraham who is going to be a blessing to the nations. He is the descendant of David who's going to sit on a throne. He's the son of man in Daniel chapter seven who is given a dominion. As you look at the book of Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. This is Jesus. And his name, Jesus, simply means salvation. And then Paul goes on to say, this is a saying that is worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came. What's the significance of Jesus coming? Well, you could think about it this way. You were at home before you came to church. You didn't just arrive here at church out of nowhere. You came from a place. You were existing before you came here. And very simply, Christ Jesus was existing as the Son of God with all glory and all honor, and he chose to come. And he came to this world of all places. Think about it for just a minute. You chose to come here this morning. You didn't choose to go down to Fillmore. You didn't choose to go to Rikers Island this morning. You didn't choose to go to the most selfish, hard-hearted home in Grand Haven. Why? Because all of those places would be unpleasant for you. But what characterizes the world? Sin. What characterizes the world is people who are rejecting God, and yet Jesus chose to come here. He chose to come to this world to do what? To save sinners. So here we are, all 8 billion people living in the world right now and then a few billion who preceded us. And Jesus came for us. Jesus came to offer salvation to all of us as sinners. And here's Paul who's saying, not only that, but I'm the foremost of all of them. What does Paul mean when he says he's the foremost? I think Paul had known history He knew that there were others who were murderers, others who had pillaged, others who had been guilty of all kinds of crimes. So Paul knew that there were others who had done much worse things, but I think what Paul is saying is, I know my heart, and I can really be the foremost. I can be the example of examples when it comes to who a sinner is. You think about his life previous to conversion, no doubt he had flashbacks of Stephen dying in front of his eyes. Perhaps he had heard the screams when he was separating Christians from their families. Probably heard the sounds of thuds as he had beaten people, the sights of blood as their bodies were torn apart. And so he can look back and say, I was doing all of this against God and he can call himself the foremost. But Christian, don't just stop there at a statement that Jesus Christ came into the the world to save people like Paul, he came into the world to save people like us. And how we see our transgressions against God, how they come back to our minds over and over again, we deserve his wrath and his eternal judgment, but God saves sinners like us whether it's something that we say or think about, we should daily remind ourselves, I am a sinner and I am a sinner who has received grace and mercy from God. I've been saved by him. So how does God save? He saves us through Jesus who came. Jesus who lived a perfectly obedient life and substituted himself in our place, went to the cross and took the punishment that we deserved for those sins and offered his life of obedience as a gift to all of us. That's how God saves, through the person of Jesus. But there's a reason why God did this. This is point number three. Why does God save us? Why does God save us? He saves us for his own glory. He saves us for his own glory. So notice what he says here in verse 16. He says, but I received mercy. I'm the one who received salvation. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the one who was the foremost of sinners, the one who can be out in front of you as an example, I received mercy that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he turns and says this in verse 17 To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, verse 16. Paul realizes that Jesus was going to use him to display his patience, his work, to others who would soon believe. His salvation was meant to be a showcase of God's powerful patience in the life of a renowned sinner. His life, being saved, was going to be a display of what God could do. So Vince Lombardi, if you don't know who he was, he coached the Green Bay Packers from 1959, 1960 to 1967. When he took the team in 59, the team had won one game. They had lost 10 and tied another. They were one, 10, and one. Their team was known for just being lazy, um, when players showed up for training camp, their mind was this was an extended vacation. They were the laughing stock of the NFL. But when Lombardi came to this poor, pathetic team, he turned the team around completely. And for the rest of the eight years that Lombardi was there with the Packers, he went to the championship or Super Bowl six times and won five of them. And so when you look at the laughing stock that the Green Bay Packers were, and they are this year too, (laughs) the conclusion is that Vince Lombardi's coaching ability was what turned this laughing stock into a championship team. You might, if you're a sports fanatic, know only one player on those teams. But you know the name Vince Lombardi because he was able to take the worst in the NFL to prove that he was the best. After one of his championships, President Kennedy called him up. He was so convinced about what Lombardi could do. And he said, could you in a way represent our country? I want you to come and coach our army football team. He turned it down. But the point was that Lombardi's ability to save a football team pointed back to him as being a great coach. He got the attention. So I'm trying to do this right now a little bit in my life. So in my driveway recently, I've noticed that there is a puddle that started out about four inches wide and then it grew to eight inches wide and it kept growing. And so I looked up under there and I saw this orangish Liquid that was leaking out. And so I pulled our van into the garage and I think, I'm not saying it is, but I think I have a cracked radiator. Now what I love to do is I love to bring cars in because I'm not a mechanic. I love to just start tinkering with them and working on them. And the best feeling is that when it's all fixed up, I go into the house and I just, I mean, this is kind of silly, but I start flexing my arms a little bit. And I say things to Chris like, I bet you never thought you married a mechanic. Yeah, and flex the guns. She gives me a little pat on the back and says, come on, move along. (laughs) But the point is that when you get a job done like that, it's not the crusty radiator that gets the accolades or the appreciation for it. It's the person behind it who fixed it that gets the pat on the back. They're the ones that get the honor and the glory for what's done. Dawn dish soap. It's amazing, isn't it? You come in and you've got dirty hands from working outside on the car or you've got those greasy dishes that have been in the sink and you just put some Dawn dish soap and start rubbing and it just cleans it all off. What gets the attention? The dawn dish soap does because it did the work. And here's the point, folks, that God is the one who does the saving. And the point isn't that we get propped up so that we can shine. Our wrecked lives with sin in the past are what point to the glory and the honor of God and how great he is in saving us. We're the cracked, crusty radiator. We are the greasy hands that need cleaning. And yet, God comes along and says, I can take a persecutor, a blasphemer, an insolent opponent. I can take somebody who has a terrible background in their life, even to the point that people would look around at you and say, man, I remember who you used to be. You used to be all messed up. Or you just look at your own life and maybe you weren't the external outward like piece of trash that people think of. But you could see into your heart and you could see all kinds of selfishness and all kinds of pride. And then God comes in and he starts doing his work in a way that you never could do. Who gets the glory and the honor? God does for all of this. You can imagine Paul. First century. He's writing to Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus. And Paul comes to town and enters into a synagogue. And he starts sharing, I am the one. I'm the Saul that you had heard of. Now my name is Paul. At the end of the night, you invite him over to your house, and he's sitting there, and he continues his story, telling about his mind the way that he used to think and how he was ambitious and how he was zealous for his judaism and then he gets to a point where he says something happened to me the savior came god came into my life my eyes were opened i used to think that jesus was a poser i used to think that jesus was a crutch for people i used to think that He was somebody whom you could leave behind. But then God did something in my life. God opened my eyes to see how great he is and and the sin that I had in my own life. You hear about God's work and you stand back and you think, if God could save a sinner like you, he could save a sinner like me. And all of a sudden, it's the creator, it's the savior who starts getting the attention for all of this. So here's an encouraging thought. Jesus came into the world to save you. You were the sinner. But why did God do that? God did that so that he might use you, if you will, as a field along the river of grace. As a field which was a throwaway field grown over with all kinds of thorns and weeds It was past anything good, it couldn't be saved, and yet he uses you as a field along the river of grace to show that no, I can redeem this field. I can take that field and I can make it burst forth with fruit and vegetables, I can make it come to life. Your life, Christian, is a display of God's ability to save and God sends you out to other people's lives. He puts you in a neighborhood. He puts you at a school. He puts you at a place of work. He makes you a father or a mother, and you find yourself living next to all kinds of unbelievers, and you have a purpose. Your purpose for being there is to be like a candle, not under a bushel, but a candle that is out in the darkness, that's shining through the darkness so that others can see what God has done. That God came into your life and saved a sinner. So I think it presses in a little bit further. We think, what would life look like if Paul lived in my neighborhood? How many more people would know about the grace of God? What would life at work look like if the Apostle Paul worked there? How many more people would know? What if he was in my family? How many more people would know? And I think let that be a gentle nudge in the small of our back that God is pushing us out into the world because this is his plan starting back with two people. I'm going to use two people and I'm going to start the human race and they're going to be filled with sin, but I'm going to show how great of a savior I am. Do people around you know the savior? You want to talk about a way to invest your life in something that is eternal. Think about this for just a minute. The cure to cancer, the cure to Alzheimer's, the cure to genetic heart disease, that would be awesome. That would be great if it came into the world and we had that this week. It would change a lot of lives and it would give people an extra 20, 30, 40 years of life. But as a Christian, God has a mission for you that goes beyond 20, 30, and 40 years. At the end of verse 16, he says that he, that is Paul, is being used as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God is putting you in front of people as a showcase that their lives, not just for 20, 30, or 40 years can be changed but that their eternal life can be changed. And only God can do that. He gets the praise and he gets the glory for it. He's doing a work in your life and it shines forth to others. So that's why Paul finishes out verse 16 with, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. He can look and say, this is God's plan. He came and he pursued us. He saved us, well, for what reason? So that his power, his honor, his glory might be on display. They might be there to save people from their sins, people who need eternal life. That's why God pursued us, so that our lives might be a display for his glory. So three takeaways. Number one, As we consider this passage this morning, we all have reason to express thanks to God. We all have reason to express thanks to God. Life might be hard. Life might be difficult. There might be challenges that you're facing. There might be disappointments on the horizon, especially as you approach the Christmas season. There might be expectations that you just know aren't going to come true this year. God kindly chose to pursue you, and to save you, and to work his grace and mercy and patience in your life. Where would you be today if it wasn't for the mercy and grace of God? Where would I be in eternity if it weren't for the mercy and grace of God? We'd be in everlasting hell. But thanks be to God who who comes to us with his indescribable gift in the person of Jesus. Just for that reason, we have a reason to be thankful. Number two, as a Christian, you have significant purpose. You have significant purpose. There's a search for purpose and significance in the world today. We want to do something that will outlast our lives. Well, what is our purpose? Our purpose is to display the saving grace of God to others. And wherever God places you and whatever context he puts you in, you are there for the purpose of honoring and glorifying God. You are there as a Christian so that others might see the light of the gospel and not just see it, but hear about it as well. You have purpose because God has saved you. And then third, because this is for God's glory, you have the best security for your salvation. You have the best security for your salvation because your salvation is not banking on you. Your salvation is banking on the reputation, the glory and honor of God. And he who began a good work is going to bring it to completion. He's doing the work in and through you. So when we step back and we just look at this, Christian, we see that God pursued us. Why did he pursue us? He pursued us for his honor and for his glory. And that's a good thing in our lives. Let's pray. Let's just go to the Lord in silent prayer for a few moments and take some time to once again thank him for the good news of Jesus, for his grace in our lives. Take a moment to thank him. If you're a non-Christian, God invites you to receive his grace today by faith. Even right now, in quietness from your heart. If God is doing a work there, you can seek God and confess your sins to Him and receive Jesus as your Savior. So just right now, talk to God quietly from your heart and then I'll come back and close in prayer. God, thank you for your plan of salvation. Thank you that the security of your work in our lives is is hinging on your glory and your honor on you and not upon us. We thank you that you sent Jesus into the world to save sinners, to save us. And I pray now that as we go from here, will be encouraged with the thought that you are securing us and that we would also be encouraged to be a display to others who are around us. That we would yield our lives up for you and let those little petty things about fears and concerns about how people might perceive us, I pray that we would let those go and be willing to be used for the most significant of purposes to display your glory in salvation to others around us. Through our words and through our actions as well, but people have to hear. Without hearing, there is no salvation. And so even as we think about the next few weeks coming up, Would you please put a sense of urgency on our hearts with the people whom you've put into our lives to be willing to be used by you in this way? And again, thinking that it's your honor and it's your glory, not our own. So please give us a yielding heart to you in this area. And again, we praise you and thank you for the salvation you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.